0: Well, this is Current Yield Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am Jim Grant, and with always is the great deputy editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz. Evan, greetings.
1: Good morning, or good afternoon.
0: Yeah, well, in fact, it's hard to tell sometimes. We published an issue of Grants last night, ladies and gentlemen, another little miracle in the can, and sometimes the day after the night before, we're not quite sure whether it's morning, noon, or night. In any case, um, we're here. And joining us today is Martin Hale. Marty Hale, as we know him in Brooklyn, and uh, Marty is the, uh, uh, the progenitor of Hale Capital Partners. has been around since 2007, and uh, what uh, he does, what capital partners do, is uh, love technology. They love technology reinventions, especially in public companies. That is the elevator pitch of Hale Capital Partners, which has amassed a merely fabulous internal rate of compounding since inception. I'm not going to quote the number because it would, I think, Marty might find it embarrassing, it's, but it's, let's say it's an order of magnitude. Yeah, more than the S&P 500 since he's been in business. you should have Marty. You'll hear more about Marty in just a second. But first, you're going to hear more about today's DelanceyPlace.com excerpt. As you know, DelanceyPlace.com is, you wake up to it. It comes in like oh, today's edition came in at 4.02 a.m. And this is uh, about, uh, about uh, 1,500 words from a book. The editors pick out the book. It's usually a book that's been around for some time and seasoned, Euro bond. And this book happens to be uh, Packing for Mars by Mary Roach. It's about bears. It's about bears because NASA studies bears in anticipation of a flight to Mars, during which it would be helpful if the astronauts could go to sleep and not eat, food being everything to take on a flight to Mars. Now, so reading about how you get to Mars, you read about how bears hibernate while not going to bars, Mars. And I'm going to quote you some figures that will be almost as astounding as the figures that Martin Hale is about to present us with concerning predilection of tech stocks to go from a lot to nothing, and then some of them back to a lot. But first, here's the dope from the Bear Center at Washington State University. Yes, there is one. So a small, you know, like an astronaut-sized bear prepares for hibernation by gorging on apples and berries, consuming up to 40 percent of its body weight every day during the gorging period. That's about 65 pounds of food a day. Close quote. 65 pounds of apple? Where where does a bear find 65 pounds of apple? I think that this is... I know these books are fact-checked, but I'm thinking that that's a supermarket-sized raid. How many apple trees you got to chop down? Anyway, now you know how I wake up in the morning. I wake up to DelanceyPlace.com, which is not being compensated for this plug. Um, But onward to uh, two-legged bears and, I guess, four-legged bulls and to the drama of tech stocks. So, as I mentioned, welcome, Marty.
2: Thank you, Jim. Uh, Thank you, Evan. It's, it's good to be here. Yeah, before
0: Hale Capital Partners came along, Marty has a, was an intern. He had a two-week internship that led to a consulting job at AT&T, which was then high-tech, which led to an outfit called Broadview, which was their beginning of this magnificent technology wave. And they has been great years there and helped to start Pequot Ventures, which became first Mark. So he comes with a lot of practical experience about technology, plus, plus Yale man. So Marty, I want you to begin. Tell us what makes tech stocks prone to keel over and then Lazarus fashion to
2: zoom up again. Jim, tech is all product cycle still to this day, and it, it might surprise most listeners to uh, understand that uh, 70% of technology companies still lose 70% or more of their value at any one time in their lives.
0: You think about the uh, inspiriting swoons of uh, Amazon, which um, Amazon was down like that, right? Was during the 1998 to 2001, didn't make some or 2004, maybe to make some spectacular round. But uh, cer- certainly, um, uh, the list of companies that have faded uh, only to re blossom is, uh, is scary in one sense, but also kind of uh, heartening, you no? Know? That uh, these companies can seemingly fail, but actually not because a company is, as you say, Marty, a company is more than a stock, and a stock is more than a company.
2: That's right. The loss rates are extreme, but the recovery rates are much higher than people understand as well. It, it, uh, one approximately one in five to one in ten, depending on when you do the study, of those companies will recover ten x from an eighty percent loss point. Half though will go to zero. So, if you think about the odds of making ten times your money in venture, one in five to one in ten odds are quite good. But you have to make sure that you're you're not part of the cohort that loses all of its value yeah
0: well um we had a a cartoon at uh on the front page of Grant some time ago uh this it was a graduation speaker cartoon that's one of the set pieces if you're in the cartoon business you can always count on and the speaker was addressing the undergraduates and uh, which cartoon was it evan i'm thinking was it one that said it's not who you know but whom you know No, it was the one in which the speaker said, um, "Never forget that if you are down fifty percent and up fifty percent, you have not broken even." (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, so, so you need to come back a lot from down fifty percent. Oh, by the way, we ought to. Marty um, knows a lawyer, as we all do, and I think Marty's lawyer has prompted him to say
2: that this is not investment advice, nor is it a solicitation of any form.
0: Marty, give us, give us some war stories uh, from your personal collection of companies that have seemingly vanished, to judge by their share price, and yet there was a strong nut of business value that perhaps someone, maybe Marty Hale himself, recognized and redeemed.
2: The famous tech recovers are many, and when you could uh, look at Oracle, EMC, Apple as 80% plus losers, Amazon that were followed by 50x plus gains, Vitesse, Symantec, Integrity, Emulex, we could go on and on and on. It is practically a rite of passage, and the big idea is that companies are more commonly a phoenix than a unicorn.
0: Now explain that one.
2: Well, everyone chases unicorns, but the reality is most companies have moments of, of near death and come back from the ashes if they're successful. Therefore, they're more frequently, if it's, it's, most unicorns are actually waiting to be a phoenix to, 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 oh. <laughs> to stretch the metaphor. <laughs>
0: yeah. You know, I, it strikes me, uh, you know, with, at, at Grants, we are students of credit and of uh, the uses and abuses of debt. And uh, it strikes me that to the extent that these tech companies, uh, the ones you mentioned, now the famous roll call of companies that have survived this right of patch, the reason they can come back, maybe, one of the reasons, is they are not heavily leveraged, or in many cases of technology, not leveraged at all. So does balance sheet composition play its role in this?
2: Balance sheet is, is certainly an aspect, I think, somewhat more profoundly, At the end of the day, uh, it it is really reinvention. Tech turnarounds don't turn. They are restarts driven by new people, new product cycles. And so at the end of the day, um, the companies that have managed to thrive have essentially embraced uh, their inner startup and done that very successfully. If you look at Netflix, which navigated uh, being a, a, a DVD company and then changed its business model almost entirely to become an online business. It's a great example.
1: Yeah. That makes it sound a lot easier than it is. Uh, how hard is it for a company to reinvent itself where it had a product that was its cash cow, that it was its kind of lifeline, and then it needs to basically turn to another product that might even cannibalize its original product in order to survive? How difficult is it for companies to do this, and how many companies can successfully do this?
2: It's exceptionally difficult, and it is rare, and it's difficult for many reasons because there, there are a lot of different ways to fail and a, a much smaller number of ways to succeed. And so uh, when you think through all the different ways to get off track, product cycle is one, but there certainly could be others. It's the Clay Christensen concept of of disruption. And so essentially you have to be willing to disrupt yourself, which is very difficult and very few people can do it. Usually, by the way, most of the time the, the existing team is not capable of doing it. It takes a a very rare person to, to be able to pull that off at the same company. In other words, many of these great reinventions uh, have to have changes in senior
1: leadership to pull it off. What is the skill set that a, a CEO needs in order to basically take a company that has a product that is struggling or shrinking and basically reinvent a company?
2: It's difficult because any great CEO has to be good at a lot of different things. The, the reality is like a pilot, you can't be good at everything except the landing. And so, <laughs> so the, the first the first point of leadership is you have to be a good leader to begin with. Now, then the question becomes, well, what constitutes a great CEO? We have done a lot of work through benchmarking really great CEOs, people we admire, and trying to understand the common behaviors. So I, I could give you my insight on what makes a great CEO if you'd like, but we could I'm not sure you wanna go d- down that rabbit hole.
1: Maybe what what skill sets does a, a CEO need in order to turn around a company that's struggling? Because I know we talked about this a little bit before the podcast. You said that it's a very difficult skill set, especially because as a company struggles, they tend to lose their best executive. They jump ship to brighter uh, locations elsewhere in kind of the corporate America.
2: Right. So the the first, I think the first point is you actually have to be any any CEO has to be a a good leader a, a across a range of different areas. And that, that, that's very rare to find in the first place. I, I think it was uh, Warren Buffett who said he would put, you know, some, an 80-year-old lady that he liked up against most CEOs of the S&P. The, the reality is, um, first, it's very hard to find great talent no matter what situation you're in. And then once that, once that great talent is at a, a turnaround, generally, um, there's a process where you have to be extreme, and it's, that's a very hard thing to do. We generally find the more extreme, the better. Because what, what happens when a company misses product cycles and begins to fail is the good people leave. You're left with C's and D's, and uh, it can be quite dispiriting. People are waiting to be led. And I think the, the key first part is stability. Our great CEOs make sure a company is viable first. And that gives one unlimited time to reinvent oneself. Now, Viability is not... A great skill set for your typical venture CEO that relies on other people's money to stay solvent, right? So I think the first mind shift is we actually have to be viable on our own, which is quite counterintuitive for most Silicon Valley CEOs or venture CEOs, although it is common sense for everyone who isn't in that bubble.
0: Um, Marty, you're a a student of markets past as well as of opportunities present and future. I know that uh, you, like the late, great uh, Ray DeVoe, are a connoisseur of uh, things that didn't work as well as things that uh, did. And I would like you to use your perspective on Sankal's past, including uh, the great garbage market of the late 1960s, for which I was present, yeah, personally uh 1960s ladies and gentlemen not the 1860s um uh, yes but, uh, absolutely. So, so let me say, so so marty so how does the present day in all of its wonders and excesses and opportunities and uh, and pitfalls how and uh, you know bear trap how does the present day stack up
2: we have a peak meter, which, which uh, audience members can see at, on, on, the, on the HCP Hail Funds Twitter at hailfunds.com when this podcast is. But the peak meter is flashing extreme warnings. It, it measures the number of companies within 10% in technology of their all-time highs. And when you, when you trace the peak meter back, you get to, uh, to, to January of 2000, essentially, and, and the other side of April of 2000. So judging by the peak meter, we are at, at the most extreme readings in 20 years.
0: Well, let's let me let, let me make sure that the listeners get this because I, I think it might have slipped by very quickly. So to read the peak meter, P-E-A key meter, you go to hailcompanies.com. dot com. What's your email uh, contact? At,
2: at Twitter, it's just uh, at, at hail funds. At okay, Hale at funds. Hale funds. There'll be a pinned tweet for the grant presentation that people will be able to see this uh, visually. But the peak meter is at a twenty year high, getting very close to two thousand, and the loss meter is at a record. Uh, low, going back to the bubble, that means the number of companies that are down and out has seldom been uh, fewer, meaning there are fewer bargains around than, than normal.
1: So what can go wrong?
2: Yeah. Exactly. Uh, to me, it seems like a setup for the bears that you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I think, could have quite a feast in the next 12 months. Yeah.
0: Marty, tell us about the uh, tin that this bubble is in search of. Uh, the bond market had a spill, was it last week, Evan? Yeah. Anyway, anyway, for for a time, interest rates actually seem to be going up. Astounding. Um, what's likely to do the tech cycle in this time around, Marty?
2: Well, Jim, you you are a better student than I of interest rates, but I, I did uh, go back and look at uh, the yield curve in all my Ned Davis charts, and I realized that there were plenty of periods where we had great bear markets without a recession, yeah. A, which I think is not well understood by many people, and B, without an inverted yield curve. So the most famous example perhaps being 1987, but there are plenty of other markets before that. There was a 49% uh, decline, for example, ending in th- at, at March 31st, 1938. There was a 40% decline, bottoming in 1942 without a yield curve, and a 23% decline in 1946 with no yield curve inversion. So um, sometimes these things collapse of their own weight.
1: Well,
0: 1980, I was, I was present for some of those. I was present um, for the one in 1946. You know, my mother had to tell me about it. I wasn't really paying it. And I was certainly present for the one in 1987 uh, because grants ran the headline on the front page was around that time was in praise of compound interest because the long bond, I think, ever so briefly touched 10 percent in 1987. It's it's astonishing to think that the bond could yield 10 percent and the stock market yet be as valued as richly as that stock market was at one and the same time. So people have these uh, these more or less fixed notions about the relationship between interest rates and, and equity prices, and you so often hear it said today that uh, the 10-year yield can't go much above, and fill in the blank, but say 2% or 2.5%, or the real yield, inflation-adjusted yield, can't go above 1% without rivets popping and the stock market breaking. Rules are quite as rigid, quite so rigid as uh, people suggest they are, if I, I, I
2: Yes, Uh, history with a a cursory study of history would tend to suggest that it's actually things are a little bit more tenuous than most people would would imagine. And everyone is probably sitting around waiting for the yield curve to invert and figuring they've got eight, eighteen months from there. They could be surprised.
1: Yeah. So. So Marty, um, you said that tech stocks are kind of flashing bubble signals that we haven't seen since January and April of 2000. And if I'm not um, incorrect, I believe the market peaked in March of that year and then went into a long decline. Now, this is an investment advice. I'm not asking you for like which stocks to buy or which ones to short, but based off of your study of history and study of tech in particular, what kind of strategies work well in these kind of environments? Like should investors, I assume this investor should be more cautious, but how should investors be thinking about these kind of facts and put in context of their portfolio?
2: Well, the first rule, I think, is actually you mentioned the late uh, Ray DeVoe. He had a line that said, our reality is less than the square root of expectations. So I think just just remembering first that reality rarely exceeds the square root of expectations is a helpful framework when evaluating these these great growth stories. And um, you know many of these facts are precisely that, just stories. They, they, we're back to an era where has, where companies are going public essentially now with, with zero revenue, and and it does remind me of of the bubble when we had um, companies like. Barpoint, Point, Smart Online, these companies that had billion-dollar-plus market caps and diverse in that uh, and and absolutely no revenue. So, but but in uh,
1: favor of that of those companies, they, they never said that in five years they would have you know five billion in revenue. They they were happy to be valued on I guess enterprise value to eyeballs. When you look at a spec presentation today, I've gone through a bunch of them. The grants wrote an article about it in the final issue of uh, 2000. Many of them will say, well, we have zero revenue now, but by 2025, we're pretty sure we're going to get five billion. And if you took the square root of those. Expectations, it would still seem too high for most of these companies.
2: Good point. Well, I, in in general, so but rule number one is is to be quite cautious about these great speculative stories, and, and then um, I, I think those are relatively easy to pass on. The more challenging part gets to good companies that are overvalued. And I think history also teaches us that one of the most important things uh, to remember as an investor is your price of entry, because even good companies uh, can have very long periods of time for you to break even Amazon when it cracked in March of 2000 took 10 years to get back to the uh, same stock price. Um, There's the, 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 and and this happens throughout history, right? There's a famous story of a lady who came in, in with her wheelchair in the 1950s, and said, I'm finally, to a broker, I'm finally selling RCA since I'd broken even. Yeah. She had bought it in 1929.
1: I was going to say, just I believe Cisco reached almost $80 in uh, 2000, and right now it's trading at 45.19. So even though Cisco has been a thriving company for the last 20 years, it doesn't look like it ever recaptured its uh, dot-com highs. Yeah, uh,
0: it's, it's, uh, Abbott Labs okay. was another such such case, and uh, Vivian Pan, who uh, spoke at a grants, I think, in 2010. She was then the CEO of uh, Hamlin. Capital and um, told the story of Abbott Labs, which over the course of ten years I had seen its stock price go exactly sideways, uh, point to point. It was the difference of about eight cents. What had happened was that the price earnings multiple had been sawed in half, like twenty-eight to uh, fourteen. And what uh, uh, what uh, saved that investment uh, was the dividend. So uh, over the course of 10 years, the, the cumulative return, mind you, not the annual return, the cumulative return was something like 25%. But without the dividend, it would have been utterly flat. Uh, the, the tech stocks you're looking at are non-dividend payers, no? Correct. Yeah. Is, is that as it should be? I mean, what, what, what role does income play in the universe of stocks in which you operate, Marty?
2: Well... Uh, it, it is it is non-existent in for, for many companies, but not not for all of, of ours. In general, we we do believe that return on invested capital is critically important. When you think through the cost of, of equity of your average micro cap, it's probably around 18 or 19 percent. And for a company to generate a, a return on its share price, it needs to generate a return on on its capital that is at least double that cost of capital. And so we prefer, deeply prefer viability and cash flow positive companies. Some, some companies in our portfolio d- do, in fact, uh, pay small dividends. So I, it's, it's a bias over here for us, at least, to have viable companies.
0: How about a viable dividend-paying company?
2: They are out there. RF Industries is one in in our portfolio. And again, by the way, not only is this not investment advice, it's, it's certainly not a solicitation either. But our RF Industries is is one in our portfolio. RFIL that has had a paid a small dividend. We've been um, we're owners of, of uh, communication systems JCS, which also has a um, you know paid a small dividend. So it's not unusual. Yeah, in, I wonder to.
0: Marty, you mentioned earlier the uh, insensitivity of uh, so many investors today to, to price, price being such an important consideration, perhaps the most important consideration of the entry point one pays being uh, almost as positive. It seems to me that uh, our central banks have not been helpful helpful in kind of conditioning uh, the marketplace that uh, the price is, uh, is not so important after all these central banks are buying up assets without regard Price or value. They're doing it to affect some macroeconomic outcome. The Bank of Japan buying ETFs is not studying the composition of those portfolios or doing a discounted cash flow on the viability of the operating businesses. It's, It's just buying because it wants to make the stock market go up. And so a question comes in two parts. Are the central banks to blame for some of this? But if they are, what explains the recurrence of this investor behavior over the course of so many cycles, indeed of so many hundreds of years? Is it something innate in human beings quite apart from the monetary deprivations we have seen?
2: I, I guess it, it it must be both, right? It, it must be human nature plus uh, plus uh, very low very low interest rates and a cost of capital. Lord Overstone wrote in 1846: "No warning can save a people determined to grow suddenly rich." Uh, and, uh, <laughs> That's a great <laughs> line. And then uh, Sa- Samuel Johnson had, had written about uh, had written uh, We are not here to sell a parcel of boilers and vats, but the potentiality of growing rich beyond the dreams of avarice.
0: Yeah, you're selling selling Frails Brewery.
2: Uh, we're in that era. We're in that sort of market right now, where where it's just it's just incredibly speculative. And uh, but I, but, I, but that surprised me to see this change because uh, these periods don't last very long. And just judging by your peak meter, judging by the past, I, it would not surprise me for this party to end sooner. It, it, it's really interesting right now that that companies that are reporting blowout earnings are going down after those earnings. Zoom, for example, had a blowout quarter and the stock's down. Uh, Fubo had a uh, a blowout quarter and the the stock is down. So companies are going down on bad news on, on good news now, which is not a great sign.
0: If hmm. bonds are going to go down on bad news. Bonds, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, go up when things are bad, except when the bad things are inflationary. Um, but I, I'm going I'm to uh, read off some names from yesteryear. These, these are companies that uh, visited uh, the realms of down 99%. And it dates from the 1960s, from the what Ray DeVoe, I think, was... I'm sure if he coined the phrase, great garbage market, it would have been like Ray to have coined that wonderful phrase, for the great garbage market in the 1960s. All right, here goes. And Marty, when you see one that really speaks to you, I invite you to interrupt and tell us a little sidebar. But I see, for example, Dolly Madison, ice cream and furniture, mind you, ladies and gentlemen, and furniture, ice cream and furniture, down 99% from a peak price of 47 And I see... Uh, uh, I, don't know, I see uh, a bell to me. Four Seasons Equity. Now, there, that was one of the shooters. It was down 99.6%. That's a financing nursing home story. Omega Equities, 99.8%. Uh, and the description that you made is questionable ventures. I dare say they're questionable ventures.
2: My favorite of this list is Liquidonics because it, 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 it was a 98% decliner that made magnetic door locks, and the reason I like it is I noticed a SPAC just went out in the in the door lock business, and it it certainly uh, <laughs> it certainly brought up brought up. Uh, that one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but there are others. Uh, one that came back uh, uh, from the old days, Cognitronics had been a 95% decliner in the great tronics boom. Um, it was optical scanning, and that had uh, about four different lives before it uh, finally sold out. And so, uh, yeah, the, the, many of the readers Asp, uh, Astrodata was another one that was down 99% that had been a real high flyer of its day and, and came back, uh, um, a couple of different times. But certainly the Tronics boom for, for the old, older folks in the audience will, I think will, will ring a lot of, will, Certainly rhymes with with today, and I, I I guess the we're not quite as extreme as the internet bubble, but but uh, we're getting there as well with with many of these spats. Well, here's, companies. here's here's one yeah. from
0: the internet bubble that you have uh, reminded us about: Charter Investor Relations in North America, uh, which became kind of unpromisingly uh, Millionaire.com. That doesn't sound like a multi-generational idea. Anyway, uh, according to Marty Hale, it went up 540 times, achieving a 300 million dollar enterprise value, and then went to zero.
2: <laughs> that was when they changed their name to millionaire.com. And uh, yes, there are there some great examples like that, like uh, like pinkmonkey.com, which was poised to become the amazon.com of the educational study aid market, or, or Golden Books Family Entertainment, which was the biggest gainer and loser in one day because right after they announced their online strategy, they announced a bankruptcy. <laughs>
0: Uh, the, the, bond, the bond market has a, a corresponding um, idea or a, a phenomenon. It's, it's not a one-day thing, but it's, it's called um, bonds that uh, that uh, are the obligations of companies that uh, file bankruptcy promptly after the issuance of the debt. And the designation there is N C A A, no coupon at all. <laughs> Enough of this funny business, gentlemen. Uh, Marty, uh, tell tell us. Uh, cash now is uh, on the spectrum of uh, of investment things and investment people on a prestige scale. Uh, cash is uh, about on a par with the average two-legged bear. It's 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 something you really is. you shouldn't uh, mention at cocktail parties. If we had live cocktail parties, you wouldn't want to talk about cash because um, it is uh, it's a it's a it's an anti-prestige asset. Talk about bitcoins, so, I mean not cash. Tell us. In your experience, it's going to sound like a little sermon. I'm inviting you to tell a sermon. But of what use is cash, Martin Hale, after things blow up?
2: Well, it's the most precious commodity you could possibly have.
0: As a technologist, Martin Hale, tell us about – do you have any thoughts on Bitcoin?
2: Uh, I do, and uh, I, I, I do think that we have to be all over blockchain as the next great compute platform. And that it will be as important as the mobile phone, uh, but but for Bitcoin itself, uh, t- to me uh, it does seem like quite a speculative bubble. I'm, my one of my Yale classmates was behind Tether, and uh, I know they have, are, are not going to to Jail uh, with the settlement of, of uh, with Letitia James, but but I, it does seem you know quite surprising to me that a lot of the Bitcoin, um, you know, buying was backed by Tether. And, and I, I would have guessed when you really deconstruct the price movement of Bitcoin, when we'll find that it's, it's essentially a rigged game.
1: Can I ask you on the blockchain, uh, real quick? One of the problems I've had with the blockchain is so Bitcoin. The white paper came out in 2008. It started trading in 2009. So we've had, you know, a good, what, 11, 12 years of blockchain existing I've yet to see a killer application built on it. And I I struggle when I try to think about it conceptually because a blockchain is a distributed ledger, but it's verified around the world by multiple computers. And that's great when you don't trust any of your counterparties and you really want the record to be as public as possible. But if you trust your counterparties or have access to legal recourse, you can centralize a database and get something that is so much more efficient. Like Visa can process orders of uh, uh, transactions than Bitcoin can in a minute, a day or whatever, with much lower power usage and a much more efficient way. What is the killer use of blockchain? Because I've not seen one yet.
2: Well, I'm I'm speculating, but my guess is that it, it's more similar to to mobile before the iPhone, where we had companies doing application management, for example, like SmartServe Online that went to zero. Uh, but but there are many many mobile middleware companies, and they weren't real businesses yet. So it wouldn't surprise me if what what you're seeing today, uh, it, it, uh, real businesses are indeed. Non-existent, but but I would make the bet that they will become e- existent um, and and become very important. It's just, I, but I can't point you to one today to say that it is the killer app of of blockchain.
0: Well, Evan, say if you wanted to buy a surface-to-air missile,
2: <laughs>
0: <right>? <laughs> you could transact on the blockchain, or you know, uh, a line of Coke or two or something. That was the Wild West version of Bitcoin, which is not what uh, Bank of New York Mellon has in mind now that it is domesticating that uh, digital script but i'm i hear myself sermonizing about bitcoin we have to have someone on this podcast who is going to give the other side of the story because grants has been rather one-sided on it and uh, not so profitably so i must say over the past several years but um martin hale thank you for joining us today it has been an unmitigated delight say that thank you a neighbor yeah not just because you're a neighbor and a grants reader it's been a pleasure indeed and evan thank you and um, just because you did such a, great, such a great job on the issue we're publishing today, in fact, in a matter of – it's going to light up the uh, internet what, in an hour, I think so. You may take the rest of the day off.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Uh, see you tomorrow morning.
0: Yeah, good. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Current Yield Grants, Interest Rate, Observer of the Air.